Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are as we've just sang here. Help us to draw near to you at this time as we come to your word, your living word, and what it has to say to us, and that it is for us here today as we come to you as people who are broken, inwardly yet outwardly. And Lord, you, you tell us here in your word that there's a reason for that, so help us to, to really know and be convinced here as we walk out these doors and what it means to day by day know that you are renewing us, that you will find us in our weaknesses and in our trials. So Lord, uh, be glorified in this time. Speak through me as I share your word this morning. Help us to have listening ears, submissive hearts as we hear from you in your name. Amen. You, we may have a seat. I will sit down. So. I have to say, this is a first for me. Leading up to this morning, I sit here. Doesn't look obvious, I left my boot at home. Uh, with a broken leg to preach, the most frequently asked question I've received over the last couple of months is, Josh, how long until you get these off? Um, it started with a cast and a boot, and now the crutches, and this is the most natural question to ask. So whenever people ask me this, it naturally brings me and my pessimistic self towards this strange and foreign land of optimism and says, just another month or so. That's until I visit my physiotherapist last week, a month later, and she tells me I'll be delayed for another month or so. <laughs> And that's when my vacation in Optimistville ends and I start questioning, I start complaining, wondering why now I'm young, why is this happening? We've heard sermons like that from other young people. Yet when we come to these passages that talk about rejoicing through trials, we ask these questions, why? How can I rejoice in whatever it is I'm going through. I mean, this is a minuscule example. Think about someone who receives the news of a disease like cancer and has to take medication or go into chemotherapy, not knowing how long this is gonna be or how long until it ends. Think about someone who loses a loved one due to death or to a broken relationship sometimes for the sake of the gospel. Think of someone who's slandered and their reputation with their name because of your faith, for whatever reason. How do you count this all joy? This is a question that has to be asked here this morning. How do we rejoice in those situations and in those moments? Is that a bit unrealistic? This is the tension that we face in this passage here in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. As Peter talks about rejoicing through trials because it results in something. 
that will cause for more rejoicing. And here he begins with that idea of rejoicing, which is the first big idea here in this passage, as you'll see in your outlines, the reason for rejoicing. In verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice. The first question we need to ask here is, in what do you rejoice? Well, we get the answer in the verses prior, which we talked about last week. If you weren't here, this a little bit of a summary. In this is referring back to verse three, that living hope. Verse four, that inheritance, the imperishable, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And when he says you, you don't wanna just assume that we know here, he's talking to these elect exiles from verse one. The elect exiles of the dispersion scattered away from their homeland. Christians, Peter is encouraging them, have an eternal perspective. This is your sure, bright future that God is keeping for you. So for this reason, Peter tells them, rejoice. Peter's saying for you Christians who are far away from home, facing these different trials, rejoice in this bright future that God is keeping for you. Look there. God is keeping this for you, and he's keeping you for that. In this hope you were called, in this hope you were saved, in this hope then, now, you rejoice. Now you might think that rejoicing is an obvious response to the certainty of such great promises, right, regarding your future, but Peter puts that into perspective for his current readers because they need to continue rejoicing in light of their bright future despite what happens in the present day through the trials. Second big idea, rejoicing through trials, half of, halfway through verse six. Though now, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the first observations we need to make here is that Peter gives uh, a number of elements here regarding these trials, and there's four of them to be specific. And first, we see that these trials are temporary, though now for a little while. Since Peter is saying this in contrast to this sure future of the believer in eternity, and that's where they rejoice in, the word now here in verse six almost certainly refers to this current physical and temporary life on earth. That's pretty clear. However, the language of for a little while is a little bit less certain. For example, think about how we use that phrase today. You know, when you say, hey, I'll be there in a little while. Now, that might mean five to 10 minutes, right? You talk to a Filipino, I'll be there in a little while, one hour or so. Or maybe you think about someone who's worked in the same place for a little while, you're, you're gonna be thinking 20, 30 years, right? So here, uh, Peter is using this phrase to that effect, a similar effect. In comparison to eternity, these trials throughout your lifetime on earth, whether they're short or long in your sense of time, 
are still only for a little while. Think about how Peter's readers would have received this. Elect exiles who were consistently being treated unjustly as Christians by their authorities. We see evidence of this in chapter two, verses 18 and 19. And being treated unjustly in general by the people around them, chapter four, verse four. If you see throughout the whole letter, this is, this is what's happening. And Peter is saying, hang in there. Guys, hang in there. It's only for a little while. It's only for a little while. Yet Peter's words here have major implications for us Christians today as we wrestle with trials in our lives. For one, God doesn't promise us a quick recovery time from our physical sicknesses or ailments or trials, whether it's a broken bone or a failing heart or body. In fact, God doesn't promise us a recovery time at all. Even if we claim healing in Jesus' name, no, because Christ, as Peter says in chapter two, verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, right, in our physical bodies and live to righteousness in our future resurrection, eternal bodies. By his wounds, get this, you have been healed. It's not talking about physical healing. That's talking about your true spiritual healing in Christ, that he healed you of your true sin, disease that is sin. So rather than expecting God to heal us of our physical sicknesses and these trials that come to us physically, for example, we should expect to rejoice through these trials because it's only for a little while in comparison to the eternal glory ahead of us. That's what Peter is getting at. Listen up to Peter as he takes up this language again at the end of the letter, as he gives this pastoral encouragement to his flock, 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we rejoice through these temporary, but for a little while, trials. But we also rejoice through the second element here, which is the necessary trial. Though now for a little while, if necessary. The first question that came to my mind is this, if necessary, according to who? Now, you might quickly think in your mind, oh, of course, God. Who else, Josh? It's pretty obvious. But we, we gotta see from Peter's flow of thought from the word itself. So look at verse three, when God uh, says that he has caused us to be born again. Verse five, he is, uh, by his power, he is guarding our salvation through faith. God was the one at work. God is the one at work. And so it's safe to conclude that Peter hasn't changed his flow of thought here. God is the one at work, so he is the one who wills these trials as necessary when they come. 
Peter verifies this reality later on in chapter three. Notice that we're uh, looking through the letter here to confirm this. For it is better, verse 17, chapter three, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Peter says, if that should be God's will. And he's saying that believers may suffer for doing what is right, or they might not, if that should be God's will. And I wonder if that's a little bit surprising to some of us because sometimes when we are faced with these trials, sometimes we are quick to blame either ourselves or the situation or other people. I mean, when I broke my leg, I'm like, that's the ground's fault, like, you know. But no, God says when these trials come in our lives, it's necessary because God deemed it necessary. So when Peter says here, if necessary, we can safely uh, interpret it as if God wills it as necessary or if God deems it necessary. And we'll see the reason why for when God thinks it's necessary down the road here. But the question remains, how, how do we rejoice through these trials that God has willed for us as necessary? Well, for the same reason that Peter states in verse five, if God is powerfully guarding our imperishable inheritance through faith, then we can rejoice in this hope by faith, knowing that God deems it necessary for us to go through these trials so that we receive that, inherit uh, that inheritance on the last day in eternity. So not only do we rejoice in hope through these temporary and necessary trials as willed by God, but also through the grievous trials, the third element that Peter provides here. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Though it be temporary, God is the one who finds it necessary to grieve you and I in those moments. Think about the words of Jesus when God was grieving him in Gethsemane in view of his suffering on the cross, Matthew 26. Let me read it for you, verse 37 and 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. That word right there is grieved. He began to be grieved and troubled. Then he said to them, Jesus says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, grieved even to death. And this is what God calls his chosen people to, as Peter explains later on in chapter two, verse 21, for to this you chosen Christians that God has deemed necessary for you to go through these trials, you, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But what we see from Jesus' example here in chapter two is that grief is an appropriate, sorry, in Matthew 26, is that grief is an appropriate response to these trials. Why? Because God grieves us 
with these trials in a grievous way. Listen to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane right before he was to be betrayed by unjust men. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 29. Though Jesus was tempted to bypass this grievous trial that God deemed necessary for him to bear as he is about to pay for the sins of mankind, Jesus submitted to God's will through his time of trial, in his time of trial, knowing that it was only for a little while, knowing that it was necessary because it was God's will. So what did he do? First Peter 2, 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Apostle Paul says, so we grieve, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6, 10, when he effectively connects this suffering and rejoicing, as we sang earlier, lovingly in part of pain and pleasure. How do those come together? This, this is what Peter is talking about. Rejoicing through trials means rejoicing in hope as you are grieved through these temporary and necessary God-given trials today. And there's a fourth element that Peter adds here, that these are various trials. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In the NIV, this reads as all kinds of trials. And throughout the letter, there seems to be a specific kind of trial that these elect exiles were facing, which was verbal persecution due to their Christian identity. They were suffering unjustly, chapter two, verse 19. In chapter three, verse 16, they're being slandered. In chapter four, verse four, they're being maligned. In chapter four, verse 14, they're being insulted in the name of Christ. And that's happening with the people around them. They're being persecuted verbally, simply for being a Christian. However, I think it's safe to say that Peter's words here generally apply to all kinds of trials, right? Literally, James applies this same concept to his readers who were faced with poverty or other types of persecution when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, whether it's sickness or slander or persecution for your faith, Peter calls his readers to rejoice through these various trials, knowing that they're only for a little while. They're temporary and they're necessary because God has willed them for you to be grieved in these various trials. So this is what Peter is saying. Rejoice in hope of your future through this grievous present trials. This begs the question, what is the reason for these trials? And Peter answers this in verse seven. 
Which brings us to our second big idea, rather our third big idea, the, the reason for trials. I put this reason in a big sentence, but we're gonna uh, break it down into three parts. So that your tested, proven, and genuine faith, like tested gold, may result in praise, glory, and honor. Here's the first part. So that your tested, proven, and genuine faith. And he says that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and I wanna cut him off here, mid-statement, to emphasize the direct connection that Peter makes and assumes between the trials in verse six and the test of faith in verse seven. And an equation uh, to help us understand here and to understand Peter's flow of thought would be this, trials equals tested faith. And this connection is also echoed by other translations of the Bible in the NIV. The word tested genuineness is translated as proven genuineness. In the NASB, it's simply translated as proof. That's why I used proven, that word proven there. So we could note that this equation is trials equals tested faith, and tested faith equals proven faith, and therefore proven faith equals genuine faith. Same thing, as opposed to a cause and effect scenario, like trials lead to testing, which I was tempted to think that was this week, but no, Peter explains this more of, uh, as a parallel equation like this, and it's really helpful to understand how Peter connects all of his dense thoughts in these verses. In verse six, the different trials that God deems necessary to grieve you with in this present day makes sure that your faith is tested, proven, and genuine, verse seven, so that, if you go back to verse five, you might receive the inheritance that God is guarding for you through your tried, tested, proven, genuine faith. Then Peter likens this parallel equation to gold that is tested by fire, which is the second part of this reason, like tested gold. And he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. By saying this, Peter is implying two things about the nature of gold. One, gold was one of the, if not the most, precious and valuable commodity back then to have. And his readers would have known that. And second is, while gold is tested, by fire to remove its impurities and refine it, it's still able to be destroyed in various ways, perishable. That's what Peter uses. So with those two things and understanding those two things, we can now see why Peter connects this precious and perishable nature of gold to the nature of our proven faith. Here's the first one. Our proven faith is more precious and the most precious commodity of this earth because our proven faith is guaranteed to come out pure on the last day through the fiery trials that test our faith today. That's how Peter refers to those trials, these fiery trials. Don't be surprised, beloved, when they come to you. Chapter four, verse 12. 
And second, our precious, pure, and proven faith will not perish, unlike gold. Since our faith is the means by which God guards our imperishable inheritance for us to receive on the last day, verse five. Simply put, God guarding our faith until the end means that he will guard us until the end, even through all the trials. What Peter is describing here is different than the idea that some people today have, and in history have thought of this term, once saved, always saved. This idea is that once you become a Christian, often by praying a prayer, you're good. And even if you stop following Jesus, even if you stop believing in him altogether, you'll be in heaven one day because once you're saved, you're always saved. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible teaches. We've seen here that believing isn't something we do once. The people who receive their full and final salvation are those who believe and keep on believing to the end. But it's all by grace because it's actually God's power guarding us through faith. He makes sure that his children persevere to the end. And that's how we understand some of these different passages in scripture and how they fit together. Think of John 10, when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then a passage like Colossians 3 verse 22 says that We'll get that full and final salvation only if, quote, indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So on the one hand, Jesus keeps his sheep from perishing and making sure they get eternal life. On the other hand, we only get eternal life if we press on in faith. And those two ideas don't contradict each other. Rather, the conclusion here is that Jesus keeps his sheep from perishing by empowering and sustaining their persevering faith. He makes sure that they don't stop believing. Like Jude 24 says, he is keeping us from stumbling. So to sum up, our our precious, imperishable faith that has been proven and tested by God's fiery trials is the guarantee. That is it. That's the guarantee that gives us our imperishable inheritance that God is guarding for us and us for on the last day. So the third part of this reason, the reason for trials, as Peter says, is this so that your gold-tested faith may result in praise, glory, and honor. That's how he reads it in verse seven. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the end goal of our tested, proven, and genuine faith. Praise, glory, and honor. Think about it, when gold is refined, right, all the dross and impurities float to the top and it becomes even more precious and even more pure. 
So when our faith is tested by God, like gold is tested by fire, his goal is that our faith results in more purity and more praiseworthiness in such a way that burns up all other sources of worth and joy so that we only find our value in him, which is for our good. God purifies our faith so that we receive praise. God grieves us with trials so that we receive glory. And God tests our faith to make sure that we receive honor. All of these trials, all of this testing, all of this refining in this life is God making sure that our faith produces this all-satisfying result for eternity, praise, glory, and honor with Christ when he returns. I mean, isn't this what we long for? In a human sense, to be praised, glorified, and honored by the people around us regarding our work and accomplishment that we have done? And Peter debunks that and just says here, no, your faith will be praised, glorified, and honored with Jesus at his return. And his emphasis here is that these grievous God-given trials in this life now make sure that your gold-tested faith may be found. Okay, as in, it will be seen then. Not now, but later on. It will be seen that it may be found to result in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes in glory. That's when you share in this glory. That's when your faith receives this praise, glory, and honor. As in this glorious satisfaction and joy comes when you see Jesus face to face and he rewards you and your faith with this imperishable inheritance that he's been guarding all along through that very same faith. And Peter reiterates that in chapter five, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, there it is, when you see him, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this is why Peter calls us to rejoice through trials. First, we rejoice in this bright future, that there's this inheritance that God is keeping for us and keeping us for so we can be confident in that. Yet, we rejoice through the temporary, necessary, grievous, God-given trials that come in this earthly life because they're proving our faith to be genuine. He's just doing something as fire tests gold, so that this results in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns in glory. But what does this all mean for us today? What does rejoicing through trials today look like? Let me suggest two points of application, not necessarily all the exhaustive points, but two points of application from this passage that I hope can be helpful for us today. The first one is this, grieving yet always rejoicing. This is the experience of the Apostle Paul when he describes the trials in his life and says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he is sorrowful or grieving, it's the same word, the original language, yet always rejoicing. Somehow they go hand in hand. 
But today, this doesn't mean that you have to laugh when your doctor tells you the bad news in his office. Nor does it mean that you remain absolutely stoic and paralyze your emotions when your reputation is slandered. Too many Christians today have this false or misdirected sense of grieving in trials. But if God has deemed it necessary to grieve us with those fiery trials to test our faith and make sure that we receive the result of that faith in the end, then it doesn't make sense to shallowly say, oh, there's a reason for everything. I mean, there is, but generally when people say that, it's just generally a cop-out to say, oh, okay, you know, I, I don't have to be bothered down by this. Or, or robotically say that, oh, God is in control. And he is. Again, what, what, what I'm pointing to here is that the attitude or, or the emphasis of why we, why we say those words and what motivates us to say those words. But no, Peter here is saying that the sensible and appropriate Christian response to God grieving us with trials is to grieve. is in crying out to God and lament. I mean, we've been encouraged that in the Psalms, right? God, how long? How long till my body heals? How long till these people stop messing with my name and my reputation? How long, God, are you gonna come till you come and judge them? How long till you make everything right because everything is going wrong, God, how long? And we do this because God is the one behind this, as Peter clarifies for us. His intention is to grieve you in such a way that makes your faith even more precious than the most precious thing on earth that will pass away like gold. And even stronger than gold, that it becomes imperishable. So when you grieve, when we grieve, remember that our tears are just for a little while in comparison to our coming salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, as he says in verse five, when he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Revelation 21. And when you grieve, never forget that these trials are doing something They're doing something, it's not meaningless, it's it's meaningful. Every long night, every tear, every trying moment, that's a faith builder, that's a faith refiner, that's a faith perfecter. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says Jesus is a perfecter of our faith. And that faith will be brought to completion at the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. And in grieving, like this, you then are rejoicing through the trials. You're not rejoicing in the trials, like, yay, I'm suffering, no. It's, Lord, I know this bright future is coming, so this, this will pass. And I know that you're the one at work. I know what's on the other side. So God, help me through this. As we sang earlier, God gives unto each day what he deems best lovingly, lovingly. God grieves us lovingly. 
and he gives to each day what he deems best lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure. Those don't contradict each other. Grieving, yet always rejoicing. And that's how we respond to these. And if we're rejoicing in light of that future hope and glory that results from our tested faith today, then the second application from this passage here today is this. Don't look for praise, glory, and honor today. The praise, honor, and glory of your tested faith will be found. It will be found. That's a promise. But it will be found when Jesus returns, when he comes in glory, so that you share in that glory with him. And he's happy. He, he's overjoyed to give you that. That's what he wants. That's what we want, truly. So don't go after the praise, glory, and honor from man and people today because your job is to be found faithful by God, not man. We can't treat man's praise and earthly glory as if that's the end goal. And I think we know that. Most of us here, if not all, know that in our heads, yet when we apply that practically speaking, when we're not being reminded by people around us, when we're surrounded by people who uh, just try to achieve everything in this life, their praise, glory, and honor just comes from their accomplishments and people, man's applause, it gets harder. And that's why Peter, that's why God speaks in his word here and is calling out this morning to us. So remember Peter's words when he says that your proven faith is more precious than the most precious thing in this world. Whatever that is, money, fame, acceptance, identity, it doesn't matter. These things will pass away. Your faith, tested, proven, genuine, is and will be more precious than all these things that will perish. You won't find your joy in this. So don't keep longing for praise in your workplaces. Don't glory in your accomplishments or look for that. Don't look for honor from mere human beings that bring temporary joy and acceptance in this life. Rather, Peter redirects us to this bright future in which we rejoice through these trials that we face. And this applies even to the good things that we do in the faith for Jesus. Not that we can't be encouraged in the things that we're doing, what we're called to do that as Christians, but there's that sneaky little temptation that makes us long for that praise and commendation by other Christians because of what we do for Jesus. And notice even the misfire there, right? You're doing it for Jesus, yet the longing for approval from people is there instead of here. There's a misfire there. Yet from a human standpoint, imagine how much joy you receive when someone who you really respect and look up to says, well done. Then he gives you a reward. Now multiply that by infinity, and that's how you'll feel. That's how we will all feel when we're commended by Jesus on the last day, when we're found to be good and faithful, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the praise that your faith will receive. You have been faithful over a little in this earthly life, so I will set you over much for eternity in your true life. Now enter into the joy 
of your master. That's what we long for. That's the praise, glory, and honor that we're to look for. And it will be found. It will be found at the day of Jesus Christ. So grieve, yet always rejoice. And look for that praise, glory, and honor later on. Not today, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. You call us to thank you. You call us to count it all as joy, to rejoice through these trials that you give us. We recognize that they're temporary, they're for a little while. And we submit to your will that it is necessary when you do grieve us with these trials, with these various trials. So Lord, when these various trials come in our lives, no matter in what shape or form, may we be unchanged in our attitudes, in our response. Help us to rejoice in our bright future, in the hope that we have in Christ the praise and glory and honor that we will receive on that day and that we'll share with Christ on that day. Help us to look to that. Help us to look to Christ and rely and trust in your promises through these trials as we grieve yet rejoice. Help us to encourage others to do the same and help us to do these when we're tempted to do otherwise. By your spirit, empower us. Jesus, we thank you in your name. Amen.